Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. As co-founder of the Carlyle Group, one of the world's largest and most successful private equity firms, and host of Bloomberg's The David Rubenstein Show, our guest today has had unparalleled access to many of the world's most influential leaders. Over the past five years, he sat down with corporate heads, including Eric Schmidt, Phil Knight, Jamie Dimon, and Tim Cook, and also with uncommonly accomplished leaders from all works of life, including Warren Buffett, Christine Lagarde, Yo-Yo Ma, Warren Michaels, Oprah Winfrey, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And just a few weeks ago, he published How to Lead, a book that instantly became a New York Times bestseller and which distills all of his revealing conversations into what's really an indispensable leadership guidebook. And Mr. Rubenstein joins us to discuss many of the key insights he took away from all these conversations, noting he himself is a dedicated student of leadership, not to mention a bit of a master of it in his own right. While reading How to Lead, I was stunned more than a few times by what these leaders revealed. One of the greatest professional golfers of all time, Jack Nicklaus, for example, told David, no matter how good I got, I always work to become better. Amazon founder Jeff Bezos said he discovered that his best decisions have always been made with heart and intuition rather than analysis. And Sir Richard Branson says he never goes into a venture looking to make profit. He aims to be the best in the field. How to Lead shares extraordinary stories of 30 pioneering agents of change and reveals how each luminary got started and how they handled decision-making, failure, innovation, change, and crisis. And so it's more than a thrill for me to have David here as a guest rather than a host and for him to share even more great lessons to be taken from the success of all these global titans. As the first billionaire to ever join us on the podcast, at least that I know of, David is an original signer of the Giving Pledge and a recipient of the Carnegie Medal and MoMA's David Rockefeller Award for Philanthropy. He's the chairman of the boards of the trustees of the JFK Center for the Performing Arts and the Council on Foreign Relations. He joins us from Washington, D.C., and a very, very warm welcome to you, David Rubenstein. My pleasure to be here. Well, it's a true honor for me to have you here. And I dug deeply into your book, and I've got a lot of things I'm anxious to ask you. And what an incredible opportunity for someone to interview all the different people that you've met in your career. So let's get started. You wrote in the introduction to How to Lead that you care personally about the positive impact that strong, decisive, and talented leaders can bring to society. So when I was reading that, I was like, hmm. So tell us your interest in leadership and how that was shaped and what influenced you to begin interviewing so many of the world's best known and most successful leaders. Well, two different questions there. Let me try to answer the first one. As a young boy, like most young boys, and I presume like young girls, you look up to people that are bigger than you or taller than you and older than you. And so I, like a young boy in Baltimore, then looked up to people who were, let's say, big sports figures, uh, Johnny Unitas, a famous quarterback, or Brooks Robinson, a famous baseball player in, on the Orioles. But also I looked up to some political leaders, most notably John F. Kennedy. So when you're looking up to people, you kind of admire their qualities that you think are good. And you say, well, they're very impressive people. How can I be like that? And so you kind of aspire to those kind of things. And then when you go to school, you read about famous people and you aspire to maybe be like them to some extent. So how did I get into the business of interviewing people? 
like most things in life that are probably very good, they didn't come by a lot of advanced planning. It's more by serendipity. And what actually happened was a man well-known in Washington, D.C. named Vernon Jordan asked me if I would succeed him as the president of the Economic Club of Washington. Now, I've lived here for quite a while, but I didn't even know what the Economic Club of Washington was. I'd never been a member of it. Turns out it was about 100 business people who meet quarterly, and I was just supposed to invite a person who was a CEO come in to speak, and then I would have questions come up for the members. I asked the questions, and that would be it. It turned out that most of the CEOs I did invite after I agreed to do this were not very good speakers, and so people were falling asleep. Hmm. The questions came up. The questions weren't really good either. So I pretended I was reading questions from the members on the cards that they were submitting, but I was really making them up, making them a little bit humorous. Maybe people would perk up, and people liked the humor. So I decided I would just start doing full-time interviewing. And I did it for quite a while. I've now been doing it for 12 years. And about six years into it, Bloomberg people said, David, you're you know reasonably good at this. Why don't you come on and do a TV interview show and we'll focus on leadership? I said, okay. And so now I've been doing it about five or six years and you know I enjoy it. It's intellectual sparring a bit. I prepare, I read a lot. And as you do, you know, it's fun. So that's how I came about. That's fantastic. So you just mentioned JFK and in your book, you said that JFK, you were very much aware. I'm not sure exactly how old you were in 1961 when I think this happened, but you observed JFK lead America out of a potential nuclear war with the USSR, then USSR, during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And you said that it influenced you to ask yourself, what makes individuals rise up and become extraordinary leaders? So 60 years later, how do you now answer that question? Well, leaders come about from different ways uh, and different backgrounds. And there's been a long study of leadership. And the question's always been, are leaders born that way or are they kind of made that way? And my view is, yes, maybe some people come from particularly good genes and maybe athletics or something, or maybe they have really, really great gray matter. But as a general matter, I think you kind of are trained to be a leader by experiences that you have. And the experiences that you have will mold you in certain ways. And so I don't think Douglas MacArthur came out of the womb and all of a sudden he was going to be a great leader, but he had family genes that where his father and grandfather were great leaders, and maybe that had some impact. Most of the great leaders in the world do not come from people who were great leaders. I mean, obviously, leaving aside royalty and those kind of hereditary things, most of the people today who are running the world, leaving aside royal families, and they're probably not really running the world, but business leaders, political leaders, by and large, came from modest circumstances blue collar or lower middle class, they didn't come from upper class families. And one of the reasons for that is that when you were in a blue collar family, as I was, you realize if you're going to get somewhere in the world, you got to do it on your own. So you kind of develop your own intellectual qualities and your own ability to move forward. Whereas if you're born in a wealthy family, you might not have to struggle as much, strive as much, work as hard. And therefore, in the end, what happens is when you get to your 40s, 50s and 60s, and you become a leader of some organization or maybe a country or something, you really have the skill set you developed in your 20s and 30s. And so I think leadership is very important and we should have good leaders. Why? Because civilization needs leaders. There's seven and a half billion people on the face of the earth. If everybody said they're in charge, we have chaos. You have to have people lead organizations to make things work better. And that's why leaders are important. And that's why I think we should always aspire to create more great leaders, because presumably, if you have more great leaders, you have a better society. Well, I want to go back to the very first thing that you said was that as a child, you were paying attention to 
sports athletes, Johnny Unitas, Brooks Robinson, people in your town and community, I understand the inclination to, you know, admire those guys and even aspire to be, you know, a great baseball player, basketball player, football player within the teams that you're rooting for. But what was it inside of you that inspired you to, I mean, you pay attention and you started paying attention really early on, it strikes me. So what do you know about yourself that made you this curious? And I'm particularly interested in how that curiosity applied to leadership. Sounds like you've been a student of this for your whole life. Well, maybe, you know, I grew up as an only child of a blue collar family. My parents were not college or high school educated. And so we had modest circumstances. I wasn't poverty stricken by any means, but, you know, very modest, 800 square foot home, one bathroom, no air conditioning, those kind of things. And, you know, I could have lived a life like my father did work in the post office or so forth. But I just felt I would like to make something more of myself than that. And I sensed that my parents would like me to have a better life than they had economically. So I just figured I would try to do well in school and try to develop certain leadership skills. But I wasn't that great at it. I wasn't a super scholar. I wasn't a great athlete. I wasn't that handsome. I wasn't that charming. I didn't have the kind of leadership skills that people had in those days. I wasn't a Rhodes Scholar. Nobody elected me president of student government. So I said, okay, I'm kind of be a, you know, an okay person. I'll get through life better than my father and economically, but not a superstar. And then uh, what happened is I got lucky in life, as many people do. And all of a sudden something clicked and my business took off and it did very well by any normal human standards. And then I decided to get involved in philanthropy and nonprofit things. And one thing led to another. And all of a sudden, I find myself, in a time I'm 60, a reasonably well-known finance person, a reasonably well-known philanthropist, something I never had anticipated. And I enjoyed being a leader in these organizations. And I found it exciting, energizing and exciting. And one of the things I've often asked people in my interviews, and you may have seen this and people ask me about it, my parents lived to see my success. And that's been one of the great pleasures of my life. And I often ask people, when I'm interviewing them, did your parents live to see your success? Because I think one of the great pleasures of life is creating children and then seeing them become successful. It's pleasant for the parent and also pleasant for the child. And so I'm pleased that my parents lived to be in an age where they were able to see what I was able to accomplish. And interestingly, my parents never really bragged about my being a prominent business person or being wealthy. They kind of told their friends, though, about the money I was giving away and the nonprofit things that I was doing. And when my mother passed away at the age of 86 a few years ago, I went through her scrapbooks that she kept. She only kept scrapbooks relating to my gifts and my philanthropy, nothing related to my business accomplishments. And so it showed that she really cared about the philanthropic things I was doing and thought that that was the most valuable thing I was doing. Wow. What do you take from that? Well, my mother was not a wealthy person. I gave her as much money as she would let me give her all the time. She never wanted me to give her staggering sums, but I gave her enough to make her feel very comfortable. But You know, it's interesting. After she passed away, I got all of her mail forwarded to me. And every day I get like 50 letters from nonprofit organizations implying that she was giving them money all the time. (laughs) You know, $5 here, $10 here, $20 here, $25. She apparently had no limit. You know, she couldn't say no, I guess, to anybody. So she was always, you know, believed in philanthropy and giving back to society, even though she wasn't by my standards a wealthy person. But she gave what she could give. Quite a heart. So you mentioned luck a second ago, and it's interesting because I've asked people this question a lot. Like, do you believe in luck? And the common response that I get from people is no. You know, we make our own luck in life. When people give me that response, they're giving it to me really sternly. 
assertively. And so do you think that luck is self-made or is there something in the stars? What's luck to you? Well, I'm not an astrology believer, so I wouldn't say it's in the stars and I probably don't believe it's preordained, but I do believe this, that if I sat in my house all the time and never left, which is kind of what I'm doing now in COVID, but if I had spent my entire life just living in my house, never interacting with people and just doing enough to keep alive, I don't think I'd have any luck. You create your own luck by meeting people. Somebody can help you. Somebody can introduce you to something. Somebody can hire you. Somebody will recommend you. Somebody will do something you want to do. So I think you can create your own luck by meeting people at the right time. I'll give you an example of some luck in people. Suppose Jeff Bezos had decided that selling books over the internet was the only thing that he wanted to do. And he never sold anything else but books. Now, he wouldn't be that famous or that wealthy. But he had the luck of realizing relatively early on that he could sell other things and he could use his software expertise to apply it to the sale of virtually everything. Suppose Bill Gates, when he developed the software for IBM, IBM said, we want to own it. We don't want to license it. Well, Microsoft would be a nice company, but it wouldn't be what it is because it was licensing the uh, software to IBM that made Microsoft go forward. And that was, you could say, luck, but Bill kind of made his luck because he kind of steered him in that direction. And Jeff kind of made his own luck because he had already built a good business selling a book over the internet. So take Colin Powell. Colin Powell made some good contacts, but he became very famous when he became the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and we won the war in Kuwait. Well, suppose there had been no war in Kuwait. Would Colin Powell become as famous? Well, maybe not. He was very talented. Maybe he wouldn't have been as famous. So sometimes luck comes along and Colin Powell was prepared for that situation. So he wasn't just luck. But I think you can be prepared for luck. But think about this. Abraham Lincoln is probably our greatest president and because he kept the country together. But suppose there has been no civil war. Well, then Abraham Lincoln wouldn't be considered such a great leader. So I won't say it was lucky that he was president during the Civil War, only that wasn't his only skill set, but it was the luck of being there during that time when he rose up and became so famous. So circumstances can be can occur beyond your control, but to some extent preparing for those circumstances, learning how to do the various things you need to do to take leadership on is a very important skill set. And when you're ready for it, if you have those skill sets and the luck produces those opportunities that can make a great leader. You just answered the question I was going to ask you. I mean, you have to be ready for that moment. You're talking about Jeff Bezos. You're talking about Abraham Lincoln, Bill Gates. These are people that did the work beforehand. They were prepared for the moment, right? So what was your luck? My principal luck, I'll give you some examples. I applied to a lot of colleges, got in a fair number of them. But one college I applied to the night before they were due, the applications were due, was Duke University. And they gave me a scholarship. I needed a scholarship. Had I not filled out the application, it was given to me by a friend. I really didn't know Duke that well. You know, who knows what happened? I applied the last moment to the University of Chicago Law School. I was thinking I was going to go somewhere else. And the last minute, they gave me a full scholarship. Or I went to work in a political campaign, and the man got elected president of the United States, Jimmy Carter. But the greatest luck, people would say, and I probably would agree, is I started a private equity firm in Washington, D.C., when nobody thought you could have those kind of things in Washington, and it grew to be one of the largest in the world, and that produced a lot of wealth for me and my family, but also it was luck in some ways because I hired people that I was introduced to by various friends. Had I not hired those people, we would not have been so successful. If Carter had won re-election and I was in the second term, I would have been probably hanging out in Washington as a lawyer lobbyist. I was very young when I left the Carter White House and I had an opportunity to kind of build a new career. Had I stayed in the government four more years, maybe that wouldn't have happened. So you never know. And you can always look back. I tend to look back on all the mistakes I made. Some people never do that. They don't look forward. And I always think something bad could have happened or good could have happened this way or that way. But in the end, I had a lot of luck and I'm very fortunate. You know, I have three children. They're in pretty good shape and they're well-educated. They're on their way. 
And so in the end, that's my ultimate legacy is what my children do. Congratulations. It was amusing to me to hear you say that some of the world's most famous leaders were not pleasant individuals, in part because of their arrogance. And I thought, well, that's honest. And particularly, you know, even including some of the people that you interviewed. But you believe that the most effective and enduring leaders have humility and they are self-effacing. So how do we square the idea that humility is a leadership asset when you yourself say that top leaders can succeed without it? Well, Humility is a virtue, I think, that has come along to be seen as such over the last, you know, maybe 500 years or so. I suspect when Alexander the Great was running around, he attached the great to his name. <laughs> that doesn't show you he had a lot of humility, right? And I don't suspect that if I had a chance to interview Julius Caesar, he probably would have impressed me with his humility or Charlemagne. But in recent years, hundreds of years or so, a couple hundred years or so, maybe 500, I think increasingly people have recognized that if you are humble, it's an advantage because being humble, you don't scare other people. You can get them to like you better. You can show people that you recognize you got where you are by some luck. And the people that I interviewed have a great deal of humility. So Warren Buffett does not sit down and say, you know, I'm the greatest investor ever. I'm so smart. I'm, I made all this money by being brilliant. He doesn't say that. He, you know, he kind of jokes about his abilities. All the people that I interviewed have some humility. And I tell people, I think humility is a great virtue. If you don't have it, fake it. If you can't fake it, I think you've got some problems. Now, there are some great leaders we know about who are arrogant. I think Douglas MacArthur, a great military leader, was probably arrogant. Winston Churchill was not a man of great humility, and they did a great job in what they were trying to do. But I do think on balance, it's a trait that I think people should acquire, should think about, and I think younger people who are humble will go further than people who are arrogant. As a general rule of thumb, there's always exceptions. Who, um, if you don't mind my asking, who amongst all the people that you've ever interviewed would you say was the most arrogant? Well, that would be like asking me, which of my children do I like the most? <laughs> not really. Skilled enough to not answer that. Oh, well, I was hoping I could get you to do that. I'm not going to you know, say that. I would say that some people have a little more arrogance than others. But not offensive. Remember, all the people I've interviewed are generally people that I've, I've yeah, known. And so I kind of you know, got to know them because I found they were interesting people and likable. And so, but arrogance is uh, you know, something like, I'll give you an example of some things that I don't like when I see people doing it when they're arrogant. Um, yelling at staff people. I think that's a uh, bad sign. You know, when you're at the top of the heap and you can take advantage of your situation by yelling at people below you. I don't, I don't think that's a good trait, and maybe some leaders do that. I don't really like it. Running around telling everybody how great you are all the time is not a good thing. My mother used to call that fishing for compliments. She'd say, <laughs> don't ever fish for compliments. You know, If somebody wants to say you're good, let them say it, but don't you say it. George Herbert Walker Bush was famous for not using the word I because his mother had drilled in him the idea that you don't brag about anything. If you say I, 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 you're really bragging about yourself in some way. So he would begin sentences without the word I and sometimes just have a verb and the predicate. He didn't have a subject. So uh, I just think that arrogance is not a quality that I admire. And I, when I meet great people and who are there are a lot of great people around and they're humble and humble in the sense you could see it right away. They don't talk about themselves all the time. They talk about their luck. They talk about their good fortune. They're not trying to show off their wealth, their material possessions. They're not trying to tell you they just won this great prize or that great prize. Sometimes I can meet with some people that I don't really know, and afterwards I find out this person had won a Nobel Prize, and the person in an hour-long conversation never mentioned it. 
you know, I don't think I would be quite that humble. If I won a Nobel Prize for anything, I probably would mention it to somebody. It's interesting because I have a neighbor. She's just passed away, and she's the only the second woman in American history to win a Nobel Prize in physics. And I didn't know that's who she was. And I'd spoken to her many times. She never mentioned it. And she was an elderly woman. And so, but her partner, I had a conversation with one day and he asked me what I was doing. And so then I said, what are you doing? And he never mentioned that his partner was a Nobel Prize winning physicist. So well, that would require some constraint. If I won a Nobel Prize, I'd probably... I don't know if I tattoo it on my forehead, but I probably would mention it from time to time. That would, you know, take a lot of uh, restraint to not mention it. But on the other hand, you know, there are, there are a number of Nobel Prize winners or Pulitzer Prize winners or people who have served in great positions, and they never tell me. The other day, I interviewed a person who won the uh, Congressional Medal of Honor in Vietnam. His name is Colonel Jack Jacobs, and he's on TV from time to time mm -hmm. on MSNBC. Mm -hmm. And he told me that he never tells anybody he'd won the Congressional Medal of Honor unless they ask him. It's just something he never talks about. And he said his kids never talk about it because he's kind of told them not to talk about it. You know, if somebody asks, they will not deny it, but it's just not something. Now, if I won the Congressional Medal of Honor, I'd probably be walking around with my Congressional Medal of Honor pin all the time. But I guess in the end, the people that are really accomplished realize you don't have to do that. And, you know, it's not necessary. You say that, and I don't believe you, by the way. I don't think you would be that person, <laughs> whether you won the Nobel Prize or the Medal of Freedom. Let's talk about Jeff Bezos, because he's an interesting character. And you start the book off with him, which I was actually really interested in. And so I'd like to hear your conclusions on his leadership genius, noting that there's some reporting, a lot of it, that shows that he lacks empathy for his employees. I actually had a former executive on the podcast who told me explicitly that his greatest limitation is that he doesn't really connect with the humanity in people and really honor that. And yet, obviously, extraordinary brilliance and success. And so I know it's complicated, but... Yeah, I've known Jeff for a while. And sure, you know, when he, after he started the company, he, he had to get a bibliography of books in print in order to sell books over the internet. And one of our companies had it, and we kind of rented it to him for some cash amount. He would have given us, I, I recall, 20 to 30% of the company, which we stupidly turned down. When I went out to visit him about two years after he started the company, it was still in a ramshackle little mm -hmm. office. He was, and he was packaging the books himself and taking them to the post office every night. At the time, though, when a company was seen as very modest, he said, look, I understand software better than my competitors, and I think I can make the software work better in selling books over the Internet. That was before he decided to sell everything over the Internet. Jeff, he has now 850,000 employees, 850,000. So, and a lot of them have jobs that are jobs of, you know, just servicing the, the products that are being ordered. So I don't know whether anybody can be that empathetic with 850,000 employees. You know, my own interactions with him have been show that he's very humane and, and very uh, polite and easy to deal with. But I recognize that I'm not at the bottom of the food chain at, at Amazon. And so maybe I get better relationships with him. But you know, think about it. If you had 850,000 employees, it, you know, may be complicated to show empathy, but, you know, nobody is perfect. Jeff is brilliant and he built this great company. And, and he and Bill Gates have something in common that I would like to mention. I did interview them both jointly. I think I mentioned that in the book. They've only been interviewed jointly, at least the first time was when I did it one time at a Microsoft CEO conference. It wasn't recorded, unfortunately. And yeah, they really got along pretty well. And I, you know, think about it. The two wealthiest guys in the world live relatively near to each other. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if they're borrowing sugar all the time from each other or how they get along. But think about this. Throughout the history of at least this country, the wealthiest people in the country, whoever was the wealthiest, generally became very reclusive. So John D. Rockefeller, J. Paul Getty, Mr. Ludwig, who was the big, maybe the first billionaire in the United States, or Dan Ludwig, also Howard Hughes. 
Each of them were probably at one point the wealthiest person in the United States. And that can make you very reclusive. They didn't really deal with other people. They hid out. Look at Howard Hughes, how he died and how he lived. Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos are out in society. They're still working hard. They're not showing off their wealth and flashing it in any particular way. They are doing philanthropic things. You know, I was on a call last week with Jeff Bezos. It was a, a business council call. And, you know, you have to wonder why the wealthiest man in the world is sitting in a business council call deciding whether this person or that person should join the business council. I mean, he didn't need to do that, but he felt he'd been a member of the organization for a while. He wanted to help out. And Bill Gates is the same. I, and I'm doing an event next week at the Microsoft CEO conference and Bill will be there. And he doesn't have to show up at these conferences anymore. He doesn't need this. But, you know, I think these guys are, are willing to, you know, still be part of society, not trying to shut themselves off. And interestingly, most people who are the wealthiest in the world at any given time probably aren't that way. They're reclusive. Not, not just people in the United States, but people around the world. How'd you make that insight? Well, as I think about who's the wealthiest person in the world, if you think about these people over the years, they tend to be reclusive in part because they're always afraid. I guess somebody's going to try to get something from them, kill them, do something to them. I don't know what. But, you know, they tend to surround themselves with enormous amounts of security and, and they're isolated from society. And that's not the way with Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos or a lot of other extremely wealthy people. I mean, people worth $100 billion or more, which not that many people. Warren Buffett's a good example. When I did the interview of this book, we agreed we would do it at his favorite restaurant, Gorat's, which is in Omaha. Mm -hmm. So I'm sitting there and, you know, waiting for him to show up. And there he is showing up. But it wasn't a phalanx of uh, security driving him. In fact, it wasn't anybody driving. He drove himself, drove himself up. And then there's a little, I think it was a Cadillac he has. And he drove himself up like anybody and didn't act like he was anything fancy or anything. It's, you know, I think kind of, you kind of admire that. Goes back to your humility earlier. That's great. I'm glad I asked that question. I want to go back to Bezos for a second because this did stun me. You know, this is a very data driven company. And when people talk about it, they talk about Amazon as a tech company. And yet you said that he makes most of his decisions, in his words, with instinct, intuition, and heart, not from his head. So did that stand out for you? And what's the leadership takeaway from that? Jeff said a couple of things that were surprising. One is intuition, because, you know, he is data-driven. Two, he doesn't make any big decisions before 10 a.m. Three, he gets eight hours of sleep every night. And I was thinking, geez, how much richer would I be if I could get eight hours of sleep a night? <laughs> I only get like five or six. And just think what I could have done if I got eight hours of sleep a night. I didn't realize that. But in the end, most people who become very successful, certainly in the business world, are people that had an idea, an intuition, something that in their gut and that pushed them forward. It wasn't analysis. Now, take Warren Buffett as an example. In my firm, Carlisle, we're a very good private equity firm. But when we get to ready to make an investment decision, we probably have a team of you know, 30 people working on a deal. And I typically get if I'm on the investment committee of that particular fund, you know, 400 page memo, 200 page memo, whatever it might be, gigantic memo. Warren Buffett's making his decisions in about 15 minutes. I, uh, after maybe reading a very, very brief summary, or maybe he read something in the, in an annual report. So he's using his intuition and his intuition is obviously great. So I think most people, and certainly when you rise up in society, you have a certain intuition. So for example, in your case now, you are interviewing a number of people. You have a certain intuition about who's going to be a good interviewee and who's not going to be. I mean, there may be some famous people that maybe you could get the interview, but you'd say they're not going to be a good interviewee because they're not going to say something interesting. So you probably have some intuition now or intuition about what kind of questions they ask. And so you're not going out and ask, doing a public survey on what the questions they ask. You're using your intuition. 
Yeah, but, you know, you go back to Daniel Kahneman, who, you know, type one and type two, and his urging that, you know, we we sort of undo ourselves with intuition. And I think that's the, the quick intuition that he's talking about, you know, the type one. But I want to emphasize this, that what you're really saying is that these geniuses, some of these people with extraordinary accomplishments in their life, are relying on an aspect of intelligence that many times we think in business we shouldn't or is actually verboten. We're kind of taught in business not to rely on intuition. Well, maybe you're taught that in certain business schools. I didn't go to business school. Maybe they teach you that. But I, I think, you know, business schools do teach you how to analyze and do spreadsheets. Yeah, yeah, the rational side of it. Yeah, the analytic. I don't know how to do all that, so I haven't done that. But I would say uh, in the end, you have to use your gut. In the end, the best decisions come that way. And what is intuition? Intuition is a combination of feelings you have as a result of your life experiences, some of your observations, your experiences, and that's what it is. And so it's not just an arithmetic or a mathematical kind of thing. But in the end, the best decisions and the best decision makers and the best entrepreneurs are people relying on their gut. I mean, if Steve Jobs had relied on analytical kind of things, he wouldn't have built you know, Apple, in my view. Or the same with Facebook. Facebook would never have been built if people had just said that Mark Zuckerberg had just done an analysis of whether this thing kind of thing would work, because many people told him it wouldn't. You're exactly right. You mentioned Bill Gates and wasn't surprised to read that he earned perfect scores on his SATs. But I wonder, in your experience, if you think that being the brainiest, you know, in light of this discussion about intuition, and now you've got Gates, who's just super brilliant. Where does intellect play into leadership success? Well, Bill Gates is very good at processing information. He has a high ability to process information and in quite in almost any field. But by a long shot, he was not the smartest guy at Harvard, and he recognized that. And he realized he wasn't. He realized he was smart, but he wasn't the smartest. There was a very famous law professor, Larry Tribe at Harvard, who thought he was a genius in math. And he went to Harvard, and he realized there were some people who were really true geniuses, and he got out of math and went into law. Jeff Bezos, when he was a valedictorian of his class in high school, but there are 15,000 high schools, I guess, and everybody has a valedictorian every year, so it doesn't mean that much. He went to Princeton, wanted to be a nuclear physicist, and he couldn't solve one problem one time he had his homework assignment. And after a couple of days of not being able to solve it with him and his friends, he went down to the hall to see the guy who was the smartest guy, they thought then, at Princeton. And this guy solved it in, let's say, 15 minutes. So when Jeff Bezos said that in the interview, people said, who is this guy? Well, apparently over the internet, they quickly found out it was like a man who's running a one-man consulting firm in Santa Monica. So, you know, being the smartest doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be the most successful. And it's very rare that somebody who's the valedictorian of his class or her class is going to turn out to be the most successful person. It usually just doesn't work out that way. So being smart is helpful. But Bill had another quality that was helpful, maybe more so than just being smart. It's very rare that the smartest person you know is going to be the hardest working person. Because very often people who are smart realize they can, you know, they can get homework done or they can get through life without having to challenge themselves intellectually that much because they're already so smart. Bill is unusual in that he's very, very smart, but he works extremely hard. And that was a very rare combination. Plus, he had very good business instincts. And, you know, that's a rare combination of those three things. Good business instincts, good sense of timing as well, but working really hard and also being extremely smart. So I think being smart is helpful. But as I tell people when I interview them, when I make speeches, I think being smart, as a general rule of thumb, it's better to be smart than not smart. And as a general rule of thumb, it's better to be hardworking than not hardworking. You know, as a general rule of thumb, I'd rather hire somebody that's smart and hardworking, but you can't often find that combination perfectly. And as a general rule of thumb, I think people that aren't smart and are not hardworking probably are not 
is going to be as successful. There are exceptions, though. I mean, do you on the fulcrum pick somebody who's hardworking over brilliant in your own organization? As a general rule of thumb, by the time they get the the organization like mine, they're probably going to be reasonably intelligent. They're mm-hmm. not going to be geniuses. I understand. Geniuses are generally not working in large companies, or they often, or unless it's a very unusual kind of company, generally geniuses are going to be in academic settings or in some very entrepreneurial thing that they might have started themselves. So when you're kind of working in a larger company, you get people that self-select. You get people that are reasonably intelligent, but probably not geniuses. You get people that are reasonably hardworking, but not complete workaholics to the point where they just can't function because they're just working around the clock and they have no other skill set. So I think I'm generally, when I'm interviewing people, I'm looking for people that are personable. They seem to have a sense of what they want to accomplish with their life. They seem to have some balance in their life. They seem to be reasonably intelligent, reasonably articulate, and willing to work with other people and share the credit and also have an interest in hard work. Hard work is not a sin. Some people say, well, don't work so hard. Well, maybe people should work hard. Nobody's ever won a Nobel Prize working at something nine to five, five days a week. To accomplish something great and an athlete, as a scholar, as a business person, you have to put in some time in weekends and nights and mornings. And that's just a price of getting to where you want to go. If you say, look, it's not what I want to do, then you have a different life. My father was a typical blue collar worker. His view was if you spent one extra minute working, you get paid overtime for it. You know, he just punched the clock at the work in the post office and work for him was was work. Work for me is pleasure. Mm-hmm. So if you're fortunate enough to have a job you know, like the job you currently have and the one I have, I don't distinguish between work and pleasure. Everything I'm doing today, I'm doing because I want to do it. It's pleasure. I enjoy it. So I don't regard anything as work. I don't have to do anything that I regard as not enjoyable. Blue collar workers don't have that advantage sometimes, of course. But as a general rule of thumb for people that are in a position to get a job that they or pursue a career that they want to be in, it should be pleasurable. And I tell people all the time, young people, when I make commencement speeches or make speeches to students all over the country, I say, look, experiment, try different things. And then you'll find something in life that you really love. I found it when I was 37, when I started my firm. But you're not going to necessarily find it at 20. Now, Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos and Mark Zuckerberg are unusual. They found it relatively early, Steve Jobs as well. But generally, you find people are successful because they tried a few things that did not work out. And they didn't find their real passion until maybe their late 20s or early 30s, or in my case, my late 30s. I love your values. And I love that you've refined them and thought deeply about them because she just articulated them like a ticker tape machine. So just in terms of what you're thinking about and what kind of people are successful and what kind of people you want to be around, I really just was in awe of the clarity that you just presented. So thank you. There's so many people in your book that I want to talk about, and we're not going to get to all of them, but this was a really cool story. This is about Phil Knight, Nike founder. And so we go back to the Jeff Bezos packing his own books. So here's a guy who, you know, he's trying to sell shoes and doesn't even have a logo. And he hires a college student, a design student to, you know, come up with something. And he pays her by the hour. And basically the equivalent of $35, she comes up with what we all know now today is the swoosh, right? The Nike swoosh. But he told you the story that apparently when he went public, and I'm not sure how many years later that was, he tracked her down and gave her 500 shares of Nike that are now equal to, at least the time your book came out, over a million dollars. And I just thought, not only is that thoughtful, but it's generous. So as someone who's extremely generous themselves, how does generosity play into leadership? Well, I think generosity means you're really trying to share 
your success with other people. You're trying to help other people. The way I look at it is this, what is life all about? Is it about having the most material possessions, being the most famous person? What gives you the greatest pleasure in life? Thomas Jefferson said we should pursue happiness in the Declaration of Independence. He never defined happiness. But presumably happiness is, and I would say happiness is the most elusive thing in life. Many, many very wealthy people are not happy. Obviously, many poor people are not happy either. But generally, the people who are the happiest, in my view, are people that help other people. I think that produces the greatest happiness. And so I think that if you're really going to be happy and pursue what life is all about, I think you should take your good fortune in your, your right ideas or your willingness to give your time or your resource if you have it and try to help other people once you've accomplished your basic needs. And so in my own case, I get much more pleasure out of my philanthropic things than out of my business accomplishments. I just find it's a way that makes people feel better when you can doing something to help them. And that's something I enjoy. And most people who are involved in some kind of philanthropic activity enjoy it. But I like to remind people that philanthropy is derived from an ancient Greek word that means loving humanity. It doesn't mean rich people writing checks. Unfortunately, we bastardize it a bit. And so you can help other people with your time, your energy, and your ideas. And the most valuable thing you can do is give your time because that's something you can never get back. You can always make more money if you're declined to do so or you come up with some new ideas, but you can't get your time back. And this is a great tradition in our country of volunteering and helping other people. When de Tocqueville came over here in the 1830s, he couldn't get a lot of people to spend time with it because everybody was volunteering for things. He was going to one meeting or another meeting to volunteering. That's because our country wasn't wealthy in those days and you had to build institutions and nonprofit things by people giving their time. And we still have that tradition in this country. And I try to remind people that no matter how successful you are, you're only gonna be happy if you're really helping other people just having the greatest art collection in the world probably isn't going to make you the happiest person in the world. Did your mom teach you this? Well, I would say uh, it's, everybody is formed by their parents to some extent, but I kind of acquired this idea later as I got more money. I realized having more money wasn't necessarily making me happier. And as I spent more time with wealthy people, billionaires, multi-billionaires, I could see a lot of them were tortured souls who you know, were just aggravated that they weren't either more respected or they weren't able to get more pleasure out of having a bigger boat or you know, they had a great art collection, they wanted a bigger art collection. They just weren't happy. They're always on the edge. And then the people that I saw who were giving money away or doing things that help other people, they seem to be happier. I think Bill Gates is a much happier person today, though obviously he's not happy with the pandemic and all that, a much happier person inside than when he was just building Microsoft. I think he's realizing that he's helping people to a greater extent than even Microsoft. And Microsoft was, you know, to help people a lot by giving them access to computers. Based on what you wrote about him, I think he sounded like kind of a hard ass as a manager, like when he was building that company, right? Well, of course, you, you don't you don't build a company from scratch by being too easy. It's not. It's not. I easy. don't mean that. I mean, I really want to parse it. I think what you were talking about was that he seems happier now, and I think uh, yes, you know, right. yes, and and so that comes with. I mean, obviously, he's a man in full, and he's completely experienced. But to your point, he's doing something that is helping people all over the world. I mean, his impact is global and profound. And I wouldn't be as surprised if he's getting greater joy out of it. But I think you can see it in him. Yeah, I think he really enjoys what he's doing. And I think he enjoys giving away the money. And I think he feels he's got a greater purpose in life than just building another company and making more money. And he brings the same passion to it that he did to building his company. Now, interestingly, and I thought this is what you were leading to, he didn't seem to be when he was building his company that interested in philanthropy. I think he was just tunnel visioned in building the company. 
So for the first 10 years of the foundation, he really wasn't that involved in it. His father helped set it up. They had another person named Patty Stonecipher running it day to day for about 10 years. And Bill, only when he retired from the company, did he really get in there. And now retired, he still was involved in the company for a while. But think about this. John D. Rockefeller retired when he was 47. Bill Gates retired from the company more or less when he was in his early 50s. Jeff Bezos is still the CEO of the company. I don't know how many more years he wants to do it. He won't say how much longer, but he's probably his early to mid 50s now. At some point, when you get to a certain age, you realize that there's probably things more than just building your company. And I suspect Jeff Bezos at some point will, before he's 60, decide to do something else. Let's talk about Apple for a minute. This is the question I was most interested in asking you about because it really ties into everything you're about. So Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple, took over for Steve Jobs. He says that he runs Apple for the long term. And obviously, he's done extraordinarily well. And and yet, we know that there's pressure from shareholders on most companies for the CEOs to focus on quarterly earnings. And so... Does the investment community, does your business, do you really believe a long-term managerial focus drives greater investment returns? And I'll just put a second question in there for you. Will we ever get away from being consumed by what happens to a stock price in any given quarter? Well, on the latter, as long as the SEC more or less requires us to public companies to report quarterly earnings, there's going to be an industry following them. And it's hard to avoid what people say about them. I would say in my own case, when we have quarterly earnings that we know people are paying attention to it, it does affect the stock price. But, you know, I would say then you're very wealthy, you're, you're very secure in your position, you have a vision of where you're going, you tend not to worry about it that much. For example, Jeff Bezos was criticized heavily by Wall Street for years for not having any quarterly earnings. Business is about earnings. He had no earnings. He had revenue, but no earnings. Mm -hmm. And he basically said, I don't care. I'm building a company. Now, all the Wall Street analysts that made fun of him, they're out probably looking for jobs now, or they're you know, probably making the same amount of money they were making 10 years ago. He's now the wealthiest man in the world because he built a great franchise by worrying about customers and not worrying about quarterly earnings. And I think to some extent, Tim Cook reflects that. Tim Cook inherited a very good company, but it was only a market cap of about $350 billion. I say only, but $350 billion. Today, it's $2 trillion. So the company's market cap has gone up by, what, six times or so, and he didn't do that by worrying about quarterly numbers. And I asked him in the interview, I said, do you get upset when people say you were supposed to sell X number of iPhones this quarter and you only sold Y number, and does that make you upset? And he said, well, I've gotten over that. I realize that they're obsessed with that, but it's the wrong thing to worry about. And he's right. So most great companies focus on things five years down the road or longer, not just the next quarter. But it's difficult sometimes to resist that pressure of quarterly earnings because you know it can affect lots of people's perception of the success of your company. Should we be doing more from a compensation standpoint? I mean, obviously at the CEO level, but more so at just at the senior manager, middle management level to you know, basically pay people on a delay so that they're not so caught up in that? Well, some companies have done that, but remember, for a while, people were getting paid large sums of money if the stock was doing poorly. So the shareholders are losing money, in effect, and the CEOs are making a lot of money. So in many companies, we tied success or compensation for executives to have stock performance. Now, stock performance, as you point out, it's kind of ephemeral because one quarter can be up and one quarter could be down. But generally, I think good compensation systems look at the stock performance over a multi-year period of time. So where do you think Wall Street is? Are they with Tim Cook and you on this, or we still have analysts talking about 
quarterly performance? And do you think companies, CEOs are still feeling a pressure to perform, you know, to a quarterly yes. number? Well, of course, there's there are fewer public companies now. In uh, the late 1990s, we had about 7,200 publicly traded companies. Now we have about 3,600. So there are more analysts and there are fewer companies to analyze. And so there's probably more pressure. Every company has got so many analysts now. I'd say most companies are not strong enough to withstand the quarterly scrutiny. I mean, they do quarterly earnings calls and and so forth. Some don't. I think Berkshire Hathaway doesn't do quarterly earnings calls. They just put out their numbers. I believe that's what they do. And some of them just, you know, put out their release and they don't obsess over what the analysts say. And some of the analysts can have some impact. But the great companies in America are not obsessed over quarterly numbers. The companies that are still kind of make a name for themselves or have some struggles and people are worried about whether they're going to make it, they are more concerned about quarterly numbers. If it was up to me, I would certainly make it optional whether you had to do quarterly numbers. And of course, if you do it optional, maybe everybody would be afraid of not to do it. But if you had semi-annual numbers, I don't think the sky would fall apart. I don't think that the sun would fail to rise in the east if all of a sudden you only had numbers every six months. You used the word pressure, and it just made me think about how the kinds of people that you've been interviewing stay centered, stay mindful, even present. What are some of the things that you've learned to, you know, sort of suppress the pressures of running an organization of your size? Well, there are many things that people do to reduce the pressures. Spending time with your family, that can be one. Spending time with friends, old friends. I have some friends that I grew up with. I've known them for 50 years. And when I'm talking to them and spending time with them, they don't care about my business. They have no interest in it and so forth like that. And my philanthropy, they just want to talk about old times or what it's like to age together or something like that. So I think uh, having outside hobbies or passions like sports can be helpful as well to reduce the pressure and the tension. And you'll find that most of my interviews, I ask people what they do for rest and relaxation. And there's virtually nobody says, you know, I don't do anything. I just keep working. Nobody says that. Maybe they're lying, but generally they have some outside interests. And um, I think that's probably a healthy thing. Any common denominators? In terms of their re relaxation? Yeah. Did anything strike you as coming up consistently? Do they all play tennis? Do they all meditate? Do they all... Well, I think they all recognize this. When you get to be a certain age, you realize the body is going downhill and your career might be going uphill in this sense. that You know, you're peaking your career sometimes in your 40s, your 50s, your 60s, but that's when the body is going the other direction. Because the body may not be designed to go as well as your mind is going. And so they all want to, you know, they generally, if you have a good life going, you have a good thing going, you want to see your children, grandchildren, you got to keep the body in reasonable shape. So they tend to do a lot of exercising and, you know, various sports, golf, tennis, uh, walking, whatever it might be. And, you know, you rarely see a CEO today who says, you know, I don't really exercise. I just don't, I'm not interested in it. I don't have any interest in it. You rarely see that. That's great. That's I'm glad to ask that. So Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg died recently, and you describe her with having tremendous grit, patience, and determination, wonderful qualities. And she also will be remembered for being brilliant and fearless and challenging the status quo. So I didn't mean to tip your hand here, but what's her legacy from a leadership standpoint? Well, her legacy will be that she was a woman who changed the course of history by fighting for gender equality as a lawyer and got to pursue many of those causes as well as a judge and justice. Her rock star status had something to do with that, but in the last 10 to 15 years, her rock star status came to be as a result of her, I think her exercising. I mean, she's a diminutive woman and weighs 100 pounds. And as I like to say, 98 of those pounds were her brain. <laughs> Very diminutive, yet she's 
after four bouts of cancer, she's got an exercise trainer. She also was a, a person who, you know, people admired for coming back to the court all those times after those cancer bouts. So I think during her lifetime, people admired her for her grit, coming back, staying on the court, seeing her life's ambitions to change the law through. In time, 50 years from today, she'll be most remembered, I think, not for her exercise routine or her love of opera or her humanity, which is quite great, but it's probably for being the woman who really helped change the U.S. law with respect to gender equality. Who amongst the people besides her stand out as people who challenge the status quo? Not necessarily an inventor, but somebody who, from a leadership standpoint, said, we have to go in a different direction and I'm going to lead that cause, like she did, obviously. Well, there are people, you mean people in the book or people? Yeah, people in the book or anybody else that you've interviewed, you know, on your show. Obviously, there are great civil rights leaders who have done that. There are great people who change the course of history because they're willing to take certain stands, political leaders or civil rights leaders, people like that. You know, changing the course of history is probably not what people set out to do, but in the end, events overtake you. So Martin Luther King actually intended to be a, a minister, and then he kind of got involved in the civil rights effort. And ultimately, while he wasn't an early, early supporter of the civil rights movement, he wasn't opposed to it, but he was doing other things. When he got involved, he kind of took on a life of his own, one that he did not anticipate early in his career doing. So, you know, sometimes circumstances overtake your situation. A little bit of luck. David, we have a tradition on the podcast where we take a brief break from the conversation and we ask our guests about a dozen rapid fire questions aimed at learning more about their personal interests, influences, and life philosophy. And we call this the heartbeat round because all the questions require a quick and instinctive answer. So if you're game, I'm going to call out a few questions and ask you to answer each one in a heartbeat. Are you game? Okay. Best lesson you've learned about money. It doesn't make you happy. One book you wish everyone in the world would read. I think the Bible is probably the most important book in the, certainly Western civilization. A leadership practice you've since adopted from one of the leaders in your book. Prior preparation prevents poor performance from Jim Baker. Quality about Saturday Night Live founder Lauren Michaels we might be surprised to learn. Much more humble than you might think and uh, willing to listen to everybody on the show for good ideas. The trait you most admire in other people. Humility. Your synonym for the word heart. Compassion. Three of the world's all-time greatest leaders in your opinion. I think the greatest leader in this country's history is an Abraham Lincoln, without doubt. Number two, I would say, is George Washington. And number three, and in terms of... Uh, uh, impact on the 20th century, probably FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. A newspaper or magazine you never miss reading? I read the New York Times every single day. A prediction about the future you're pretty certain will come true? The sun will come up in the east and set in the west every day. <laughs> Quality that derails the most leadership careers? Arrogance. By the way, that has come up about 90% of the time. We talked about it earlier, but amongst all my guests, same answer. One subject you think all leaders would be wise to bone up on? I would say uh, probably history, American history. Life lesson you wish you'd learned earlier? That I am not going to be a major league baseball player, and I should have not wasted my years eight, nine, and 10 trying to be a major league baseball player. <laughs> Skill improvement you're working on right now? I would say... Uh, my technology skills, which are very, very limited. And a cultural value every organization should have. I would say 
the ability to make people share the credit. I love that. That's wonderful. And these are great answers. So thank you. I want to get back to our discussion, but thank you for going through this with me. David, before we say goodbye, I'd love to give you free reign here and ask you if you'd send us off with insight around any one leader that you've interviewed or two leaders that you just really want to call out whom you personally deeply admire and, you know, really might punctuate this entire conversation and really the book. Well, I interviewed in the book somebody we haven't talked about who was in my firm for 12 years, Jim Baker. Now, there's a wonderful biography now out about him Mm -hmm. called The Man Who Ran Washington by uh, Peter Baker and his wife, Susan Glasser. And he was a man who was incredible chief of staff in the White House, the gold standard, great secretary of state. But he taught me many things. And one of the things that's in, the, in that book that I remember is his father drilled into him, prior preparation prevents poor performance. Prior preparation prevents poor performance. And he always seemed to be very prepared for whatever event we were doing or anything he was doing in life. And I kind of try to learn from that, you know, to always be prepared and you'll probably do better off. And he also did a incredible job of, as a non-elected official, really having a lot of good things happen in Washington, D.C. I'd also like to cite somebody we have talked about briefly, Colin Powell. Colin came from very, very modest circumstances. Parents were Jamaican immigrants, and Colin was not a great scholar at CCNY. He managed to graduate, but he was not a scholar of any consequence, as he would admit. And then he basically worked his way up, was in ROTC, and then he worked his way up and became the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the first African-American to do so. And he did an you know, incredible job in that position. And then I think he did a good job in other things he did in the military and, and government. So I really admire both of those two people. And I think they were great role models for people. So it's interesting. I don't know that I picked up that James Baker worked for you. So I, I don't remember reading. Well, I would say, well he, worked, he was a partner at Carlisle. I don't know if he'd say he worked for me, but I recruited him when he left as the Bush administration. And he went back to practice law at his family's firm, but he was also a partner in Carlisle. And he um, was a partner for 12 years in our firm. Well, we're talking about leadership and we're talking about you and your experience. And you just said something that just struck me as being incredibly timely, which is we couldn't be more polarized, it seems to me, in terms of our political ideology. And so people aren't even talking to each other if they don't like who the current presidential candidate that the other person is rooting for. And yet you've mentioned JFK and Jimmy Carter, who you work for. These are Democrats. But then you've also mentioned the first President Bush. You've mentioned James Baker. These are very much Republican people. So you're really not concerned about what their politics are, are you? Well, I, you know, I'm friends with Democrats. I'm friends with Republicans. I don't give them money to any political party now. As the chairman of the Kennedy Center, as the former chairman of the Smithsonian, as the chairman of the Library of Congress Board, as the chairman of the Council of Foreign Relations, I think it's best to be apolitical. So I make no political contributions and I have friends on both sides. And I think it's more effective to be able to do that because you're not seen as overtly political. And at least that's my perception that others may disagree. I'm here to say I admire it. I think it's an example that we need. I think we've lost sight of collaboration and cooperation, which is how the whole human species has survived. So you're a model. Just I'm stunned just listening to this that it doesn't really matter. You're looking for quality people, not necessarily what their politics are. And many of us can't get beyond that. So I just think that's remarkable. Thank you. I mean it sincerely. And I want to thank you sincerely on behalf of my audience, David. This is just 
quite an honor. And your book is wonderful. And what an incredible experience for you. When you were talking about joyfulness and where you're getting your happiness out of your life, I thought, wow, you're right. You are living the life by having these opportunities to be intellectual and have conversations with some of the most extraordinary people, but you're doing it from a place of humility, which is you want to learn yourself. So I stand in honor of you, sir, honestly. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for giving me the time. And I wish I were in La Jolla with you. seems like a good place to be, but uh, some other time, okay? If if you ever come out here, I would love to meet you, sir. Thank you so very much. And have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye. 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 Before I say goodbye, I'd like to welcome our many new listeners to the podcast. Our reach now extends to 143 different countries, a fact for which I'm especially grateful. A longtime listener to this podcast and a former colleague of mine called me recently. During our chat, she reminded me that this idea of leading with a greater balance of mind and heart is still very much ahead of the world and how most organizations today manage. And I surely know this to be true. And so the whole purpose of this podcast is to drip by drip present compelling guests whose own work inherently reinforces the thesis. My friend's call reminded me of a conversation that I had with Dr. Spencer Johnson right before he died in 2017. You'll recall he co-authored The One Minute Manager and wrote Who Moved My Cheese, one of the most successful books of all time. During our chat, Spencer asked me to explain what it meant to lead from the heart. And when I finished, he said something I'll never forget. He said, you know, Mark, these ideas are well ahead of where we are today, but they will inevitably take hold in business for the simple reason that everything you're talking about is truth. So we'll keep going with this podcast until Spencer's prophecy is fulfilled. As we close, I want to thank my awesome team, including Ken Boynton, Susan DeRoche, Carrie Finnessy, and our show's producer, Eric Oz. And as always, I leave you with my constant reminder, when you lead from the heart, your people will follow. This is Mark C. Crowley signing off for now and thanking you for listening. Mm-hmm.